Welcome to Shift with CJ. I'm your host CJ and together we will explore the areas of health, human performance, biohacking, psychology and much more that will inspire you to become the best version of yourself. Time and time again, people show up in our lives which always share some kind of wisdom or sometimes pure bullshit and even the best of us fall under these traps most of the times. You can see these people in your everyday life like when someone pops over Instagram and asks you to eat things like cabbage all day to lose weight or when you go to the gym and someone is sharing stories and tips on how they got to where they are right now. So there are facts, there are stories, there's self-experimentation and it could be very difficult on who to trust and why. My personal approach is to go by looking into things which are evidence based to clear through most of the crap out there. I really respect people who take a deep dive into the scientific literature, studies and that bring to you actionable steps that you can use in your everyday life. Hey, that's why I started Shift with CJ. And today, ladies and gentlemen, I have brought on the show another expert who is making everyone's life so easy. My guest on the show today is an author. He's a blogger. He's a YouTuber. He's an entrepreneur. He speaks on the world's famous stages. And what I love about this guy is that everything he says has dozens of references from respected journals and papers backing it up. He's someone I personally trust and that is why I have bought on this what him on the show today to speak about health and wellness. Joining us today all the way from Estonia, Simlan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. <laughs> Good to have you. Um, so, first question, how cold is it in Estonia right now? Uh, well, uh, I think uh, it's definitely like below zero. So something like minus 15, minus 20, something like that. So it's a regular February <laughs> for uh, Estonia. Oh. And I think like usually the coldest part is like in the middle of the February or like in maybe next week is going to be the last time where it's going to be really cold. Man, I must tell you about this that I have, I was born and raised in Dubai. So every time I go to a cold place, like for the first four or five days, I'm in such shock. But I also think about like all the positive effects of cold, like the cold shock proteins, and the cold thermogenesis and all those things that you guys can get over there. So sometimes I'm a bit jealous of the snow. In Dubai right now, it's like 35 degrees or something like that. And this is winters for us. <laughs> so it can get pretty hot in here. And sometimes we don't need to use the sauna. We just walk on the streets and then we, we get all those things. Now, for everyone who's listening, I've had the chance to meet Sim in various biohacking conferences because, hey, that's where all the cool people like us hang out and have fun. I've also... Um, if you've been following my Instagram, sometimes I've gone live when Sim was on the stage and he's been talking about uh, metabolic autophagy and things like anabolism and catabolism. So, Sim, how old are you, firstly? I'm uh, 26 at the moment. Wow, 26 years old. And when did you decide to get into health and wellness? Because I know you decided this very early in life. But I want to ask you, like, why didn't you just decide to like smoke, drink, or have some pizza, man? Why personal development and biohacking? Well, I th well, I definitely did it like in uh, in in like the early early uh, after high school, basically. But uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know, like I didn't um, find it like very fulfilling or something, and I definitely wanted to always just maximize my potential as a human being and uh, yeah, be, you know, make something out of <laughs> out of myself and out of my life, and uh, yeah, that's that's why. 
got interested in uh, just um, improving like my productivity and health and performance. And as a byproduct of that, I uh, because I like wanted to just improve my own um, like intelligence and strength and speed and stamina and those things. I just uh, stumbled upon like this biohacking, uh, and uh, from there I started doing different kinds of uh, like different uh, dietary strategies and different kinds of sleeping protocols or whatnot uh, to uh, just figure things out and uh, yeah, get better myself. And uh, that's where I also uh, started sharing uh, those uh, things with other people and uh, created my blog, uh, created a YouTube channel, and uh, yeah, started writing books about it. Man, um, trust me, everything that you've written, spoken, and shared on YouTube and your podcast has helped thousands of people, including myself, because I've been listening to you for a very long time now. And one of the reasons I wanted to get you on this show today was because one, you're like super smart, uh, you're the prodigy of biohacking and whatnot. But um, also because you and I share something very common. Um, we're both young and um, a lot of your work revolves around something that I really like. Things like the topics of longevity or like you said, extending the human potential and human lifespan. And I have personally been interested on how far we are able to push the human potential. And one part of extending the potential is having the right amount of energy and the right amount of circumstances so you can slow down aging or just, you know, be young again. And personally, when I first started talking about longevity, I got a very weird digital look. This was like when I was 27 or something like this, 26, 27. And I was talking about like hashtag longevity and this and that. And everyone was just looking at me and they were like, who wants to hear about longevity? All we care about having is a six pack and the aesthetics. And not not that we don't care about it because I'm sure Sim and me, we both have six packs. But (laughs) things like how strong can you bench press or deadlifts, or muscle size, or how fast can we run? These were the most important questions that um, were kind of being thrown down. And how did you get interested in the topic of longevity? Uh, yeah, well, it also uh, originated from uh, the uh, like uh, bodybuilding or fitness. Uh, so I was doing like weightlifting and uh, that sort of thing. And uh, of course, it's very beneficial for your health and longevity by itself. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just uh, wanted to see like um, what else can I do <laughs> besides that, uh, and uh, because of wanting to just optimize uh, things. And uh, yeah, I think I think I uh, one of the few uh, one of the initial things that kind of sparked my interest was this intermittent fasting type of thing because um, like dietary restriction in any form has been shown to be one of the uh, few ways to like extend lifespan in other species and. Uh, that was like a very like easy win basically like okay i have to kind of eat a little bit less and i can live longer so yeah like maybe i can do it or something and but you know calorie restriction um works until it doesn't so like it's not very, like incredibly sustainable if you have to like eat like one third less food for the rest of your life <laughs> like most people not gonna not gonna do it and they're gonna like just quit or uh, like go into this uh, binge and ba- binge and fast cycle so that's why uh, like I-, I had to like wanted to know like what's what is the underlying reason why this calorie restric- restriction works uh, what is like the what happens during this when your when your body is you know basically starting and what kind of processes go on and a lot of these same processes happen also through other things like other activities also mimic this effect like you know exercise does it to a certain extent but uh, intermittent fasting also does does it uh, so yeah like um, you know as a biohacker i shouldn't or like we shouldn't think about uh, how can we uh, 
basically starve ourselves <laughs> or how can we put ourselves mm-hmm. into this suffering uh, uh, w- when we can actually you know reverse engineer it and see uh, why does it work and then try to figure out like alternatives better alternatives with fewer side effects and uh, that actually give us uh, more let's say more results so that's when I got more interested in this indoor fasting uh, scenario and uh, the other things that kind of relate to it. Well, I mean, people who are listening to this right now, they must be thinking starving, calorie restriction and things like that. But I want everyone to know that it's not only me and Sim guys who are thinking about this. The science of longevity is something that is picking up a lot. And this is not something new. I mean, thousands of years ago, you have these ancient tribes and communities like the yogis to the aboriginal shamans to the medical alchemists to pharmacists and then comes people like me and sim who are just trying to explore this and it is so this industry is growing so much like if you look at the anti-aging market globally currently it stands at about 58.5 billion us dollars and that is about to rise in somewhere close to like 88 billion US dollars in 2026, which is just five years from now. So if um, if you guys are thinking that we're talking about something new, no, guys, this has already been done. And I like that you mentioned that you saw um, some of these things happening in different species. In your wonderful book, Metabolic Autophagy, you also uh, share with us like some of these uh, species, non-human species, like let's say the Greenland shark that can live up to like 200 years, the bowhead whale that is like also around 200 years and so on and so on, the naked mole rat and all these things. Why do you think that these um, these species are able to extend their lifespan um, more than like just the other ones? Why are these selected yeah. number of species doing it is there something i have my theories about it but like i wanted to understand like your perspective of it uh, well i th- i personally think that it's because of uh, they're experiencing some environmental stressors in uh, in like a small amount uh, so for example all these sharks and whales they live in like a slightly colder environment so they get like this cold stress response and uh, like the na- naked mole rat he lives in underground and uh there he has like a very high co2 tolerance as well and uh, it's you know basically also experiencing other kinds of stressors there like calorie restriction to a certain extent and uh, increased like pain pain tolerance uh, so yeah i think uh, one of the biggest reasons has to do with uh, this it kind of stress environmental stress in particular is uh, you know signaling the body to kind of you know survive and try to make it out of there alive and uh, a lot of things like exercise is also like a physiological stress. Fasting is a stress, cold, heat, all those things are stress. And they turn on the bodies, these defense uh, mechanisms and antioxidant defense systems that then force that kind of start to make the body healthier and uh, slow down the aging process. So, yeah, I think that that's, you know, and in the modern world, we're in a very like comfortable environment. We're overfed, uh, under moving and we're overnourished, basically, and, you know, we experience not a lot of like actual physical stress uh, as a result of that or, you know, health span and uh, let's say just vitality itself is uh, generally lower. I um, I completely agree with that. And I like that you brought up the concept of CO2 tolerance. Well, for anyone who's listening, 
all through our lives, at least all through my life, I was told that, guys, um, CJ, if you want to like be healthier, you need to breathe more. And then I was consciously trying to just inhale a lot of oxygen all the time, thinking that, hey, oxygen is a good guy. Carbon dioxide is the bad guy. And the more I can focus on like getting more oxygen, probably that's going to extend my lifespan. But then I have a background of martial arts. And then we see these ancient martial artists and these breathwork superstars like Wim Hof and these advanced yogis. And one of the one of the things like these grandmasters and stuff like they do is that they're doing the opposite of what I was told to do. They're not breathing in so much of oxygen. Most of these people will breathe as low as five to seven beats per minute. And to put this into perspective for everyone who's listening, your average person, which probably including me as well, we breathe somewhere around 15 breaths per minute. And if you're like sick or, you know, you're just um, not in the best shape of your life or suffering with something, your breath extends to almost 30 breaths per minute. That is 20 liters per, about 20 liters per minute. And when we're talking about um, having lower um, breath rates, that's about five to seven breaths per minute, which is about two liters of um, oxygen per minute. And what we also spoke about is these bowhead whales and sharks that are living in this underwater um, environment. And did you know that just the basic, like living underwater, the carbon dioxide is 50 times more the concentration in the atmosphere. And um, that is probably one of the other reasons that these whales are kind of getting a lot of these carbon dioxide and they basically increasing more carbon dioxide in your body has shown to do quite a lot of things. Like it is, it changes your metabolism. You see these people who are doing ancient yoga and Qigong masters, and they always tell you, relax, take a deep breath, exhale more, because that also increases your life forces, which have traditionally been named to like prana or chi, and they have all these different breathwork protocols. But I'm, I'm really glad that you bought it up here because CO2, even when you're like trying to, it, it does so many good things for your body. Like it relaxes your blood vessels. It helps you circulate blood even more. Um, even there's a disassociation of oxygen that comes from the Bohar effect. So I'm glad that we're on the same, um, same wavelength there. So now you have mentioned in your writing and, um, this is probably um, the latest, the latest and the greatest research when it comes to longevity, when we talk about different hallmarks of aging. So let's let's take a look at these different hallmarks and then we can um, kind of discuss and see why um, these hallmarks are so specific about longevity. So first thing that comes up is when your genes get instable, so like genomic instability, what do you think is causing our genes to get instable? Like, is there environmental factors? Is it epigenetics? Is it, um, what are we doing wrong that our genes are like kind of getting screwed up in a way? Right. Uh, well, the, one of the biggest things is just uh, like environmental damage or DNA damage um, that happens because of, you know, chemicals in the environment, um, you know, just... Uh, different kinds of uh, carcinogens, uh, uh, pesticides, whatnot, those things, they do cause uh, like this DNA damage and this uh, damaged DNA becomes more prone to uh, 
becoming mutagenic and um, mutate in some way. And uh, that eventually just leads to these abnormalities that, um, you know, is like genomic instability. Yeah. Um, also, like I mentioned, uh, I like that you mentioned carcinogens and there are carcinogens and these phytoestrogen compounds and all these things that are all around us. Like a lot of people wouldn't know that using like a deodorant or a perfume can also um, let these molecules enter your skin and then kind of they interact with uh, some of the DNA or the genes. And when we think about genes, guys, like, you know, it is it is very, um, a, a layman would think like it's very complicated, but it's it's not that it's, it's not that complicated. We have like 3 billion base, base pairs. We have only four letters in the DNA, A, uh, like adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. So it's just a circulation of all these things. And at this point, we have like 20,000 genes. So, um, it's not as complicated as you think, but anything that you do which damages your DNA will definitely, definitely, definitely impact the way you live and how you show up in the world. The next thing that comes up is telomeres. So please tell us what telomeres are, because I'm sure a lot of people listening will be like, oh, haven't heard that before. Yeah, well, telomeres are these um, basically like these caps on uh, the chromosomes that uh, protect, the, to protect the, the chromosome and uh, yeah, different kinds of like DNA damage itself also shortens those telomeres and aging shortens telomeres and other other things as well. Stress does it. Uh, so yeah, like the shorter kind of there is an association that shorter telomeres um, are linked to like uh, aging and longer telomeres are also linked with aging, but not to like all, not uh, indefinitely. And there is also like some uh, negative side effects to uh, through that as well. Uh, so yeah, like uh, telomere are considered to be uh, like protective against aging but it's not like a um, complete uh, yes yes or definite answer so when we talk about telomeres um, getting shorter like i want everyone to think about telomeres as like your shoelaces you know when you have those shoelaces in the end they're they're similar when you look at them on a molecular level and the dna damage that we talk about there's also a concept um, called the hayflick limit which is simply that um, a cell before um, a cell can divide itself about 50 times before it reaches a division limit and then or the Hayflick limit. And that can also accelerate aging. So these telomeres, uh, like you mentioned, right, with stress and other things can um, can impact aging. Have you found a way in your research to increase telomere lengths by any chance? Uh, yeah, well, the, some research shows that like meditation can lengthen telomeres, so like stress management, basically, that you are like reducing the amount of this burden on the system. And uh, like one, like I, 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 I believe also like, you know, re moderate regular exercise also does it to a certain extent. And uh, like one of the few foods that actually has been shown to lengthen telomeres is uh, is a red meat, um, <laughs> which is wow. like a contra contrary to a popular belief. And uh, I think like probably it has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, meat is this growth food basically that makes things grow. And uh, yeah, that is maybe one of the reasons that it can help uh, to like lengthen the or re repair the telomeres to a certain extent. But, you know, again, like excessive growth is also linked to like uh, malignancies and cancer. So there is always like a point of uh, diminishing returns. And like quite recently, like maybe like a few, maybe like a few weeks ago or a month ago, the um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy was uh, seen to uh, also lengthen telomeres uh, and uh, yeah, be very uh, 
kind of beneficial for like this longevity. I had a few weeks ago on the show, Dr. Jason Saunders from the hyperbaric oxygen um, therapy USA. And he also mentioned that hyperbaric oxygen chamber has shown to increase telomere length. Have you ever experimented with um, increasing the enzyme that is responsible for increasing telomeres, telomerase? I know that people have um, some kind of peptides that they experiment with, and there are some compounds and research that can naturally elevate the telomerase. So in your, um, have you seen any of these or have you tried any of these compounds, which kind of naturally boost the telomerase enzymes? Uh, I have not, um, I haven't taken any like uh, specific uh, supplements or <laughs> pharmaceuticals for that. Okay. Um, honestly, I, I looked up on it and um, some of the, some of these research companies that are coming out with these um, telomerase boosting enzymes, they're just so expensive. Like I wanted to, the biohacker in me was like, I want to try it, but oh my God, like a month, something for a month. Like the last I checked is like $800 or $900. And I was like, oh, you know, I'd rather just like sit and meditate all my life than pay that for a month. Cause it kind of becomes a bit too much. Right. Um, yeah, well, it depends on also so like, yeah. Uh, you have to know like where you're starting from as well. Like maybe measuring your telomeres first would be a starting point. It's like maybe you don't need to um, lengthen them. And uh, like I said, like you probably don't want to like indefinitely lengthen them, like make them super long. <laughs> mm-hmm. So have you measured your telomeres? Uh, no, I haven't actually. Okay. Um, I That would be something that um, I would be really keen on doing like knowing your chronological age versus your biological age, which um, some people say it's not the most accurate uh, measurement, uh, but at least it gives you some kind of um, a, a mark to look at. Next thing we have is how proteins lose their functions and um, how proteins in our body like misfold and things like that so what's what's really going on there uh well it's um almost like a byproduct of aging itself like your body loses its ability to uh like build muscle and maintain muscle and becomes increasingly more difficult uh to do it and um it also like ties in together with uh, like the dna and these mutations uh that um eventually start Mm -hmm. like the oxidative stress and dna damage just uh make the proteins uh, dysfunctional, basically, like these misfolded proteins that spread inflammation and uh, oxidative stress and, uh, you know, th- ways to uh, properly fix it, fix it or like, f- you know, properly fold those proteins. Again, has been shown to be like heat, saunas does it, exercise probably does it as well, and uh, the cold maybe as well. Okay, so everyone who's listening, if you're thinking about this protein folding thing, one easy hack or a few easy hacks that uh, Sim just told is get into a sauna, um, do some exercise. It doesn't take a lot of effort and also um, get yourself exposed to some kind of cold. And protein folding or protein misfolding is like it becomes a big problem as you age because some of the biggest um, health markers that or health issues that people are facing when they kind of get old is the fact that they have these neurological diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, which definitely decrease, if they're not decreasing their lifespan, they're definitely decreasing their quality of life. And some of these things can be traced back to 
misfolding of certain proteins such as beta amyloids, which are these proteins that go into your um, brains and they sort of like um, become like a plug. So your brain doesn't have the ability to clear them. And that is one example on how like a protein can um, damage you. And then comes my favorite or not favorite, but like one of the most interesting things that I've been fascinated with is uh, mitochondria. And um, I must say this, that every time before I had a podcast and before I had like a way to share my things on the blog and things like that, the only thing I would do is to write like small messages on Instagram, like on my stories, but Instagram because of the story space is so limited, it could be very confusing. And the only thing people would ask me all the time is like, CJ, you mentioned something like mito, mito, something. Most of the people don't even know how to pronounce it. So, and even till date, my friends still ask me, what was that thing you spoke about? Like mitocon something, something, something. So anyone or my friends who are listening right now, tell us him what is a mitochondria and why is it important? Uh, yeah, well, mitochondria, you know, is the power pl- powerhouse of the cell, basically, that uh, produces uh, energy or ATP and uh, mm-hmm. mitochondria are, you know, essential for life. Like without mitochondria, we can't like basically live because we wouldn't be able to uh, produce energy. And uh, like we wouldn't be able to carry out all the other uh, like life-sustaining processes in the body. So uh, yeah, that's quite important. And uh, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction um, it can be like characterized by many kinds of things. Usually, it's just uh, characterized by this mitochondria become broken and uh, they start to spread again, like this reactive oxygen species and oxidative stress uh, to then like neighboring uh, particles or neighboring organelles and the cells and uh, yeah, like as a you know, it's it's inevitable to aging itself. Like as we get older, we start to lose our mitochondrial function. But um, again, like these things like uh, DNA damage, um, bad diet, overeating, not exercising, not getting the, this beneficial stress response, those things uh, will also uh, promote this mitochondrial dysfunction, basically, or like the mitochondria become more like a stagnant or more more um, let's say weaker. So. One of the ways that you can probably fix this is um, growing new LD mitochondria in a process called mitochondrial biogenesis. What are some of the ways you've found or like the hacks that you can tell the audience today to kind of like grow new mitochondria? Uh, yeah, one of the uh, easiest ways to is to exercise <laughs> like uh, cardiovascular okay. exercises. Cardiovascular exercise is the, uh, one of the best ways to do it, uh, just to, like building up this aerobic capacity. Uh, because then the mitochondria like need to produce more energy, like or your body can like, sense the signal that uh, there is a demand for more energy, and therefore like we need to build more power plants, basically in essence. Um, other ways that also do it, like uh, intermittent fasting, can do it um, as well as um, or like intermittent fasting per se will uh, do like mitochondrial density, which uh, isn't necessarily growing new mitochondria. But it's uh, making the the already existing mitochondria more efficient and kind of you know making them work better uh, with less energy cost. Uh, so you're not you're not like producing more energy plants, but you're uh, making the ones you have better. And uh, like ketogenic diets, ca- ca- uh, carbohydrate restriction, those will also do a mitochondrial density as opposed to my biogenesis. Uh, for my biogenesis, uh, you can also do like some nutrients uh, like. PQQ and CoQ10 are good for the mitochondria. 
those are like some of the key ones and you're gonna get like get them from like uh, foods like liver uh, organ meats as well as like uh, cacao or like dark chocolate and also i've seen um a few a few weeks or months ago that you do a lot of your cooking yourself and you have this wonderful beef heart uh, was it a cow's heart or was it a lamb's heart that you cook and you know you share it on your Instagram and stuff like that? And that it itself is such a high source of uh, CoQ10. Um, yeah. So those are some things, but most of the times people will just go for the muscle meat. And for people who are listening and you're like, I think people would be thinking that this mitochondria is just this one or two things in the body, like, and that is what we're talking about. But it, that's not how it works. As I mentioned, mitochondria are within every cell of our body. So now you're thinking every cell. So what is the average um, agreed upon cells that the human being has? It's somewhere around 30 trillion. And now here's a bit of math for everyone who's listening. You have 30 trillion cells. You have about 1,000 to 2,000 mitochondria in each cell. So till the end of the show, I want you to calculate how many mitochondria are there. And then let that, let's add some complications like in the brain, there are some areas of your body, like the eyes, the brain, um, for women, the vagina, these things are much more denser and can have up to like 10,000 mitochondria in those cells. Cause basically we need energy to see energy to think and energy to reproduce. So that is the thing about mitochondria. The way I look at it is. I, um, but you can correct me because I might be confusing mitochondrial density with mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, I do it with exercise in a way where I do these high intensity interval trainings where I'm forcing my body to push beyond the aerobic capacity and, um, basically starving for oxygen. And this way the mitochondria by itself senses or these, uh, senses these signals that, Hey, right now we aren't able to produce enough energy. So either let's get stronger or let's get rid of the old guys, the old mitochondria, and like, let's get some new kids on the block. Am I correct in my approach to this? Um, I think uh, you do need to, um, like when it comes to this uh, mitochondrial density, then you do need to reach this, um, like uh, this comfort zone basically, or something where you are energy deprived. And yeah, like a hit, hit uh, cardio, uh, would reach that threshold um so i think it like because it's cardio you probably get like get both uh to a certain extent you both biogenesis and density but i think more it will be uh, for the density uh when it comes to hit cardio because it's you know like it's more intense uh whereas with the aerobic cardio you're doing it for longer period of time so you're increasing this um aerob aerobic capacity and um also like co2 tolerance to a certain extent uh, with with uh, the uh, the elim elimination aspect of eliminating the weaker mitochondria, then uh, that also happens with the higher intensity thing. So um, w when you are experiencing like this higher physical stress um, from like exercise or like fasting as well, then you also turn on like this sen another sensor like AMPK, uh, which uh, governs the process of autophagy, which uh, is a process of uh, like recycling cells from uh, dysfunctional parts and organelles so you are eliminating kind of the weaker parts of the cell and converting them back into energy so it is true that you are 
cleaning house, um, for you know, lack of a better word, that you're doing when you're doing uh, hit cardio or like fasting, for the matter. Um, I like that you mentioned autophagy because that's again one of the titles for the key governing concepts of your book and what you endorse. So, autophagy you mentioned is a word that um, translates into clearing up old parts. But why do we have to clear these old parts? And that ties in again with one of these hallmarks of aging, right? which is called cellular senescence. We spoke about the Hayflick limit before that, okay, before a cell can comfortably divide itself, um, it takes about 50, like 50 tries to do that. And after that, there is a big chance that those cells aren't really active. And they, for everyone who's thinking, uh, listening, I want you to think about this as like, they're like dead weight in the body because they're not really doing anything or performing any functions. They increase inflammation in the body. Then with mitochondrial dysfunctioning as well, there is senescence associated mitochondrial dysfunctioning. So have you found any ways to kind of like, um, get these uh, apart from autophagy because that again has been shown to be one of the biggest factors in um, clearing up all these senescent and dead cells and recycling them and bringing the new ones anything else that you think is um, important that people should know when it comes to like get rid of these dead cells in the body uh yeah there are like fasting is i think one of the best ways to do it uh, because of the autophagy process, uh, but also uh, fasting turns on this complex of proteins called foxoproteins uh, that are another one of these longevity kind of um, associated uh, proteins. And they're like transcription factors that get activated in response to stress. And uh, foxoproteins also um, like target senescent cells. So one of the ways to turn on the foxoproteins are with uh, fasting as well as uh, exercise uh, cold heat shock, heat shock, uh, heat shock or saunas, and uh, like also ketone bodies, so like a lower carb diet. And you know, the one of the reasons why the senescent cells also um, appear in the first place is because of again, like this DNA damage and oxidative stress or uh, inflammation that um, comes from like w whatever source it may be. Like it can become because of the environmental pollution, it can be because of radiation, it can be because of. Uh, obesity it can be because of insulin resistance it can be because of uh, even like sh uh, like uh, sh shift work or jet lag circadian disruption those things um, can all be uh, like a trigger for the senescent cells and uh, yeah just trying to minimize the exposure to let's say this unnecessary oxidative stress and inflammation by not eating let's say inflammatory foods which would be you know, vegetable oils trans fats those would be like the most uh, inflammatory foods ever um, yeah not let's say, not over frying your foods, uh, whether that be uh, meat or, or plants. And yeah, like just not overeating in general, that was a that is a good um, guideline. But interestingly, like vitamin D and magnesium also um, inhibit these particular uh, senescence uh, associated secretory proteins or peptides, I believe, which would be SASP and, uh, and or I think it's actually senescence associated uh, secretory phenotype or something, which is short for SESP. And those SESP basically um, kind of catalyze the formation of the senescent cells uh, in, in, in general. So the vitamin D and magnesium can inhibit those uh, SESP. Uh, so yeah, you, you don't want to be basically vitamin D deficient mm -hmm. and uh, magnesium deficient. But uh, unfortunately, like most people are deficient, especially in these uh, two um, uh, nutrients. 
Yeah, definitely. Like um, we think about this. I mean, in Dubai, we have sun all the time, but most people in Dubai or UAE or the Middle East are 80% of them are vitamin D deficient because we don't just step out because of the heat, but also magnesium because magnesium is such an important trace mineral. Like it's um, involved in more than, you know, 300 enzymatic processes in the body and like thousands of cellular reactions and the truth is like, again, 70 to 80% of the world is like deficient in that. So one of the ways, uh, guys, what I want you to take away from this is that please increase your magnesium and um, vitamin D. Yeah. Also with this times of flu and times of these, um, you know, the pandemic that's going on, one of the other things that you can do to make sure that your immune system is regulated and like is performing at its highest peak is also the combination of vitamin D, magnesium. I would also add in some K2 in there so that um, the calcium just gets channeled into the right places. Um, when I was growing there, up... There are, there are, there are like, um, I can also mention that there are some uh, you know, supplements or these, they're called senolytics that are like uh, experimental drugs uh, that are supposed to like eliminate senescent cells. Um, some of them is actually like quercetin, which is also like good for the immune system. And uh, quercetin... Um, you can get it from like whole foods, from like apple skins, especially, and like this vegetable uh, fiber, uh, but it's uh, not not that significant amounts, uh, but there are also like supplements out there. Another one is like fisetin, uh, which is uh, another synolytic, and uh, it's a flavonoid, which you get also from these uh, colorful colorful vegetables, and especially like onions or garlic, and that, that sort of thing. And even like maybe EGCG can be something from green tea uh, that uh, is, has like synolytic properties, or like even you know, berberine and those things, some of these supplements that may have maybe beneficial with that. I love that you bought all these uh, supplements up because these supplements, as I mentioned, can be found in the nature as well. When you go, um, you know, you can see um, quercetin and like things like um, onions, garlic, you can have fisetin, which also boosts a lot of your brain activity. And you can find this also in these um, some kind of berries and things like that. And what is surprising to me, Sim, is that I, um, I am from India. And while I was growing up, when my grandmother was alive, she would always like, I would, I would take a Panadol for a headache. And she would always tell me, no, don't take a Panadol. Just take like some Ayurvedic stuff and like, you know, something more natural. But when I was growing up, I was like, ah, oh, she doesn't know anything about this. Like the doctors are saying to get a Panadol. So that's more important. But what I've discovered, especially when I've dived deep into the health and wellness, that the wisdom of our ancestors, especially things like Chinese traditional medicine and Ayurveda, like these guys figured this out a long time back. So you mentioned quercetin, fisetin. I would also add like some of these other things like tocotrienols, um, black, some of the black pepper extract, like piperlogamine. There's this, um, there's this, um, tea or like a powder form that you can get from Japan is called ashitaba. Um, astragalus is always used in Chinese medicine. So there are all these things that can um, affect these zombie cells um, and intermittent fasting and things like that is definitely shown to have one of the biggest impacts when it comes to this. And I also like that you mentioned that most of the people, like if you I mean, I've traveled the world and most of the times when there's lack of food or you don't have options at the restaurant, the most easiest thing that everyone would go to is like, can I please have French fries? And I'm sitting on the table and I'm like, 
can you please not order french fries it's like really bad for you like i can hear them say it and i'm like oh please don't order french fries and they're like why and i'm, I'm like yeah because it's fried they're like so everything is fried and i like that you brought up that you know it's um french fries most of the time they will be cooked in rancid vegetable oils and then you said don't um, heat your um, heat your protein sources so much because again then there's then comes another concept of advanced glycation end products or AGEs whoever is listening is like easier to remember H causes AGEs and um, the way all these things work and they kind of modify the extracellular matrix and then they lose their elasticity this can lead to so many things like heart diseases, blood pressure issues. So everyone who's listening, try not to burn your food because when glucose in the food reacts with high temperature oxygen, um, you, can have, you can have all these um, complications in your body. And you mentioned before stress, what like stress is important. You have um, in the animal kingdom, we spoke about the naked mole rat, um, we spoke about the bowhead whales. You can also add to that list the um, the ant queen or the bee queen, which also live like 10 to 20 times more than their counterparts. And um, one of the other things they face as well is stress. And why is stress important is because it gives you a hormetic effect and you're like an expert in hormesis. So do you want to tell people what hormesis is? Yeah, for sure. Like uh, hormesis, um, you can think of it as like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So um, mm -hmm. it is a small amount of a toxin or a poison or stress that um, doesn't like, you know, kill you, but it uh, causes a small amount of damage and uh, or injury. And the body then um, after it heals, after it recovers from the stress, it gets uh, stronger. So like exercise is the best example of it. Like you uh, lift, uh, lift uh, weights at the gym, you get weaker in the short term, your muscles get damaged, you're broken down, but after you like uh, recover, uh, sleep, eat, uh, nourish yourself properly, then you're actually stronger and you can lift heavier weight uh, in next time. So uh, that is hormesis. And, um, you know, as humans, we're able to tolerate different kinds of environmental stressors, like again, uh, heat, cold, uh, calorie restriction, starvation, fasting, um, UV, UV radiation, uh, different kinds of you know, like phytonutrients in plants, to poisons, toxins in uh, in uh, berries, and that sort of thing. Those are all examples of uh, hormesis, and uh, yeah, just that they have like a very uh, beneficial effect on like longevity because of like turning on these very similar pathways as like this exercise and it does. Like they turn on autophagy, they turn on the foxoproteins, they suppress um, oxidative stress. Um, they clear out the senescent cells and those sort of things. I like that you mentioned about exercise because um, nowadays it's a global trend. Everyone wants to exercise. It's just been increasing and increasing in the past few years. But also I want to make sure that we tell the audience that what Sim mentioned was exercise, take a break, let your body recover, and then go for another exercise session. But what I see, and I've been guilty of this for so many years, that we've been thinking like, oh, we are a warrior and we see all these CrossFit athletes and then we see all these people on the TV and they're like, their motto is just to oh, push yourself harder, be motivated, go, 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 go all the time. And if you're doing that and if you're not tracking metrics like heart rate variability, which is the amount of stress your nervous system is going through, or you're just not listening to your body, like there were times that I used to do intense CrossFit and even when my body was sore, I was just like, I'm a warrior, I'm going to do it. So 
if you fall under that camp, then we want you to know that, hey, exercising is good for you. But if you overexercise, it can also cause other problems. Now, we both know that alcohol and gluten um, are also some of these stressors. I mean, they're just not good for you. Let's let's say that can it have a mild hormetic effect. But can you use alcohol or can you use gluten to kind of like stimulate a little bit of hormesis? Or should you just avoid them completely? Uh, well, I do think uh, that the poison is in a dose. And uh, you can certainly like... Uh... Because like those things are not like um, universally bad to everyone. So like if you're not gluten intolerant, then you can probably get away with a lot uh, without experiencing like any negative side effects. Uh, and uh, with alcohol, like you can also maybe increase your alcohol tolerance uh, to a high level without getting a lot of uh, like damage from it. Uh, but essentially, like you know, I th- I, I do agree, agree that. Uh, a small amount of like gluten, like at least it shouldn't uh, wipe you out. Like you shouldn't be in the in bed for the next day if you eat like some bread or some uh, if you have a glass of wine or something. Like a healthy body isn't only like healthy in the particular present moment, but it's also able to like tolerate stress and tolerate like uh, just a beat down. <laughs> like a healthy body should be able to uh, take the beating, uh, but it kind of recovers from it fast because it's healthy, so to say. So if you're not able to recover from a particular stress, like you're not able to recover from like a hard exercise or a sleep deprivation or something, then, um, you know, it's I, like, I, at least I wouldn't want to be in that fragile position. Like I would want to be in this position that I'm able to recover and bounce back really fast. So that's why kind of training yourself to, um, uh, like be exposed and tolerate these like bad stressors is also a good thing like go going uh, with short sleep every every once in a while actually i think it's you know for me it's a very valuable uh, something that i want to, to kind of cultivate uh, because you know then i'll be able to function and be able to perform even if i don't get like the perfect sleep uh, of course you don't want to do it all the time but every once in a while that's actually a good thing in my opinion so like it reduces this fragility in your in your body and system and likewise with gluten, like if you're eating like an anti-gluten or like a zero gluten diet for like like, like a few weeks or a, a year, and then you accidentally eat some uh, bread or something, or, or maybe like you inhale some gluten at the pastry shop, then you get like this allergic reaction or something, or you're like brain fogged and tired and mm-hmm. uh, something, because your, your body does lose, like it's developed this certain like uh, autoimmunity against the gluten because of uh, not having exposed to it. Uh, but if you do it like in a you know, small amounts every once in a while, then your body remembers how to deal with the gluten and uh, therefore is also uh, less affected by it. Uh, but of, again, like it depends on the situation. Like if you actually have like an autoimmune condition, celiac or something, then you want to avoid it. And likewise, if you're like already damaged, if you have like uh, intestinal permeability or you're very like inflamed and brain fogged or something, chronic fatigue, then you may want to take like a, yeah, this short period of time where you are diligently avoiding all the bad all the bad things as a way to kind of allow your body to recover because if you're constantly like beating yourself down then you're never going to enter this recovery zone and with alcohol there is um, some research that like small amounts of alcohol is actually beneficial for longevity kind of is associated with like a longer lifespan um, but only like if you drink like maybe one glass of wine uh, maybe per maybe you could get away with like per every every night but uh I would imagine like maybe per week that would be like maybe three to four glasses of wine that would be like a good thing for longevity actually because of 
the you know the you know depends on the alcohol like uh, like red wine has like resveratrol which is um, sirtuin boosts sirtuins and also the autophagy to a certain extent um, and it has like these uh, also polyphenols and uh, similar compounds uh, then like strong alcohol like spirits uh, vodka or gin uh, I think they would also have like a uh, like a similar hormetic effect, uh, at least like in traditional medicine, like here in Estonia and Russia and Finland, those things are very um, like traditional medicine to take like a shot of vodka if you're sick or something uh, to mm-hmm. uh, maybe maybe boost the immune system or a little bit. And like the ethanol, that is also helps to like boost ketone bodies. So maybe you get like the uh, indirect beneficial effect from the uh, ketone body production from the alcohol. But like again, like excessive alcohol will surely. Uh, so basically, you want to get drunk, maybe maybe like a little bit of, not not even like tipsy. You don't want to be want to get tipsy, but like you know, you you would notice that you had something, but you don't want to get um, hammer smashed, and you don't want to get tipsy. I'm going to record whatever you just said in another clip, and I'm gonna play this to my friends and my family who thought I was a bit weird a few months ago because there was this time that I completely went off alcohol and like gluten and stuff like that. And keeping the same philosophies in mind, whatever Sim has just mentioned, what I decided to do was like, I was having my dinner around like four or 5 PM in the night. And I would just, even if I'm alone, add a shot of bitters or add um, a red wine. And my friends and family were like, why are you sitting and drinking alone? I'm like, guys, it's not it's not for the enjoyment purpose, but I'm doing this to become more, less anti, like fragile. And um, the gluten it's is well, like normal. <laughs> exactly. I, will, um, I would avoid gluten for most of the times, but every month or every three weeks, I'll make sure I just eat a little bit so that, my body doesn't forget how to manage those proteins um, that I digest from gluten. Now, you can we spoke about the physical aspect of it, and then we also think about the mental aspect of it. So they also say like you can also become stronger in your mental thinking capacity with facing some kind of adversity. And most of us will be shy of facing, and adversity is different for everyone else, right? Like for someone, it could be going up and talking to a woman in the bar, or someone could be like um, raising their hand in a class to ask questions. And it just depends from person to person. But we've also seen a lot of research in the in the brain and the neuro neuroscientists that have told us that um, facing adversity can also make you stronger and more resilient what are your thoughts of it do you face adversity do you go for the most challenging thing first or like how do you approach it um yeah i do i think there's a lot of uh, benefit in doing like the hard things and uh, doing the things that you like you're in particularly like scared of um so because you know it kind of builds character it makes you like makes you more numb against the uh, <laughs> the anxiety and distress sort of say like if you are like used to, uh, let's say, picking up girls or something, then you're not afraid to uh, like rejection and you're not afraid if other people say bad things to you. So basically you're not like a snowflake. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like likewise, if you're used to like public speaking, then it's you know one of the best life skills in general. Like you're yeah, able to speak in front of a lot of people without uh, getting afraid and without uh, like losing your train of thought uh, because uh, like most people are afraid of it. Like, you know, second biggest fear after death is usually public speaking 
And uh, yeah, it's uh, very beneficial, at least what I've seen from my own uh, personal uh, journey as well. And uh, likewise, like, you know, yeah, because like uh, what I would like to do is uh, I would never want to be like addicted or dependent of anything. Uh, like because I, and the, like I do, like I said, it's very subjective and these um, dependencies are also very subjective. So some people are dependent of like caffeine in order to wake up. So that is something I would never want to be in because like I'm my like productivity or my mood or my focus is dependent of this cup of coffee. And whenever I don't get the coffee, then I'll be like brain fog or something. That's not the one where, where I want to be. So for me, I'm never going to uh, become addicted to coffee because uh, I'm like automatically, if I notice something like that, then I, w- I would uh, take action against it. Uh, it's going to be like maybe uncomfortable because of, um, you know, it's because of, like some people enjoy drinking coffee, but again, like it would be something that you need to do in order to like, uh, you know, at least have like this more self mastery over yourself and you're never like uh, dependent of things. Do you cycle caffeine? uh i i do sometimes like uh, i don't do it like like on a scheduled basis so i i just don't drink that much coffee to become like uh, dependent or to need to cycle off of it i drink only like one cups of coffee a day or maybe like two at max so yeah i i don't really get into this uh zone where i would need to cycle off it i do have like days where i don't drink coffee so usually maybe once or twice a week where i don't drink coffee my approach to that is i'm also like you i would um I would have a good balance between tea and coffee because again of the polyphenols and uh, phenols that are associated in both of them but uh, for every month normally i would do a, a caffeine cycling course which consists of like having one to two cups of coffee every every day or like five days a week and then taking a break just to reset those adenosine receptors um, every for like five to ten days after every month so that's the way I look at it. And one of the one of the interesting concepts that have come up recently is by a very respected person, which both of us know, Stephen Kotler. And uh, he talks about the habit of ferocity. And um, these are ferocity is just a set of neurological and physiological habits that can get you to peak performance. And what that does is like if like Sim said, if you were scared of doing something, just go do it the first thing. And over time, you will just gain mastery over it. And whatever is holding you back will actually push you more forward in peak performance. So we spoke about one of the most important things that I wanted to get your take on is that in recent years, there has been this whole um, argument from the a, the longevity enthusiasts, and then the biohackers, and then the medical doctors, which is about mTOR. So basically, these nutrient signaling pathways, and I know you're an expert on it. So what confuses me is that some people say mTOR, which is, um, for anyone who's listening, it's called mammalian target of rapamycin. It's, um, it's a growth pathway that makes your cells, muscles grow, and is also dependent on the energy that you eat. So if you're going to the gym and you want to gain some muscle, then you would have extra calories and extra protein. And that extra protein boosts this pathway called mTOR. And then as you mentioned, then there is another pathway, which is also a nutrient signaling pathway, which is AMPK. Now, in your experience, do you think, I mean, what I believe is like 
you shouldn't be boosting mTOR all the time, but sometimes like naturally if you're exercising, you have to do it. But do you see like mTOR really being the culprit when it comes to reducing lifespan? Um, well, to a certain extent, um, a little bit, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like it's something that you don't want to be turned on all the time. And, uh, yeah, but, but you do need to have it, uh, especially when it comes to like muscle growth and uh, preventing uh, frailty in later life. So if you're like uh, very low mTOR, especially in your like later years, then you are at a higher risk of uh, developing these, um, you know, sarcopenia, which is like a loss of muscle mass with aging, and uh, that can just make you more prone to diabetes and uh, mm-hmm. obesity and those things. So that's definitely not a good thing. In that scenario, you may want to actually have like higher amounts of mTOR to uh, help you to maintain muscle mass. Um, like, uh, and like uh, the research isn't like, you know, very clear about it either. Like uh, all the research that has been shown that mTOR shortens lifespan is on like these uh, animal models and uh, cell studies where they're also like the animals are fed like this very bad diet and a very junk food diet and they have so there's not like a there's not a like a compa- com- comparison study between like a good paleo diet versus uh, the standard American diet with a bunch of uh, protein added into it uh, so that is like the problem and there's no like real human studies uh, about it either because like mTOR is turned on by many other things besides uh, protein. Um, and exercise like you can also turn on mTOR with uh, insulin and uh, basically high, high blood sugar so uh, if you're eating uh, if you're like a diabetic then your mTOR tends to be turned on like you know all the time but almost uh, because of the hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia uh, so uh, yeah like um, if you're a healthy person then you the mTOR that you do turn on uh, would be beneficial for like muscle growth and uh, muscle maintenance uh, whereas and at the same time you're also able to like you know if you're sleeping, then you're not eating, then your mTOR is low, naturally. And if you do like some forms of this time sheet eating, then uh, you will also suppress mTOR. So uh, it is, you, you may want to get like some balance into it, but you probably don't need to like neurotically worry about it <laughs> uh, as long as you're healthy and as long as you're at a, like a good uh, body composition. So yeah, like just the, just the, there's a, yeah, like the mTOR will, would be, you have, to, you have to differentiate between the mTOR that gets turned on by like these chronic diseases um uh, versus being healthy mm-hmm. what's why most of my interests around revisiting all the studies about mTOR and protein was the work that was done or is done by um, Dr. Gabrielle Leon who is um, who's a fascinating researcher and she is obsessed with protein and she comes on the table and tells everyone that hey protein isn't that bad for you and having higher amounts of protein is good for you and um so that really spiked my interest because I know that she's trustworthy and she's she knows what she's talking about. She's done the research and she's seeing clients and reversing some of these age-related diseases with higher protein levels. But then you have higher protein, you have higher calories, then you have this other um, thing that you just mentioned, insulin. And insulin like growth factor one, growth hormone signaling. And I mean, it's good that you know, when we were kids and we we're growing up and then we were, we were fed all these carbs and proteins and things like that, it secreted a lot of IGF-1 and growth hormone. And that kind of like helps us grow faster. It, it can have neuroprotective effects. Um, it helps skeletal metabolism and things like muscle regeneration. But I want to know which, or I want to rather tell the audience 
that most of the people that I see around me are always like having a whey protein and just, you know, if they're bored, they'll just have a whey protein. And I wanted to take your take on it that is mTOR like you, I know that strategically manage your mTOR levels um, when it comes to your fasting most of the day and then you use it some, somewhere around exercise. Am I correct? So is it the best strategy that you've found to like get that amount of protein in at the same time, not elevate mTOR so much throughout the day? Um, well, I think uh, it depends a lot on the person and their goals. So like I I think if you're doing this time machine eating where you're fasting for 12 hours and eating for 12 hours, um, that would be like a basically neutral, so to say. So eating three or four, four meals within that time frame wouldn't be like a bad thing, I think uh, it would be it would be uh, a harmful thing to have the mTOR or having like any eating window of like sixteen or fifteen hours, where you're just literally starting to eat after you wake up and you eat you have your like last meal before going to bed and you're only not turned on mTOR and you when you fast only is like seven to eight hours when you're sleeping that would be like probably a bad thing, uh, and it would be like keeping you in this uh, chronically elevated mTOR state. But if you're doing some form of confinement uh, for 12 hours and, and 12 hours then that's probably neutral that would like the minimal effect of those uh, and uh, m- moving forward if you're doing some intermittent fasting where you fast for 16 hours and eat within eight hours then that would be like a slightly net uh, negative in terms of the mTOR expression uh, because you're spending like the majority of the day still in a faster state and you're only like, one-third of it is in a fed state. So that would be safe, <laughs> completely safe, in my opinion. And if you eat like once a day, then I think you have, then you, would, then you wouldn't have like anything to worry about in terms of mTOR uh, because you're just uh, stimulating it in a very short time frame. And there's, there is like a, I would imagine that there is like a cap, basically like a threshold after which any additional protein or any additional calories wouldn't uh, stimulate more mTOR so there isn't it's not that like the more protein you eat the more mTOR you're going to stimulate uh, I think there's going to be like a certain threshold or a cap uh, that kind of reaches this threshold and then it's not going to have like an additional growth effect because that's the way it works with uh, protein synthesis so your your body can only synthesize a certain amount of protein in a specific time frame uh, like per meal it's said to be like 30 to 50 grams of protein is the maximal uh, threshold uh, for this uh, muscle protein synthesis and uh, I think and mTOR does promote muscle protein synthesis so I would imagine that uh, it's also somewhere around there so yeah apart from mTOR signaling and exercise have you found any other ways to increase muscle protein synthesis because um, for everyone who's listening Sim just mentioned 30 to 50 grams of protein but I want you to know that it's not like you're eating 30 to 50 grams of protein for a meal and you synthesize all of that. A lot of it is kind of gone to waste. So there's only a certain percentage that you can synthesize, but maybe there are methods and there are ways to increase that muscle protein synthesis. I know exercise does it. If you, if you exercise and then you eat, um, you take a break. So all your digestive enzymes um, are ready to absorb that protein. And then you go ahead and eat protein. Then you will have a better muscle protein synthesis. Any other ways, any other um, things that you've found to increase muscle protein synthesis? Uh, well, yeah, the, the, the only ways to increase it is like um, exercise, resistance exercise and uh, eating protein. Uh, so those will be the only ways. And 
the way you can increase the like muscle growth in general, you can also approach it from the other end by reducing a muscle protein breakdown. So like it, it's not only about how much protein you synthesis, but it's also how much you break down. So if you're like the, the, whether you build muscle or not depends on the balance between muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. So if you're still breaking down more muscle than you're synthesizing, even if you're eating like um, tons of protein, then you're still not going to build muscle because you're breaking down so much. So that's why like maybe some endurance athletes aren't able to build that much muscle, even if they're eating a lot of calories because of, you know, they're eating, but there's also breaking down that much. They're burning that much calories as well. Uh, so you can reduce the amount of uh, muscle protein breakdown and you can still, you can even have like a, a net more, higher net uh, muscle growth um, without changing anything by just reducing the amount of muscle protein breakdown. So that will be like not doing a lot of like catabolic exercise, which would be like CrossFit or like, uh, or even like uh, this hit cardio is also catabolic. So if you reduce that, then you would automatically start to like build a little bit more muscle. Uh, and uh, yeah, like just avoiding, avoiding like chronic stress because, and like, you know, caffeine can, you know, cortisol is anti, cortisol is catabolic, it's going to break down muscle tissue. So if you're like stressed out all, the, all throughout the day, uh, then that's going to make you like increase the muscle protein um, breakdown. And like, you know, you can also be stressed out from fasting, like if you're fasting too much, then that will definitely lead to more muscle protein breakdown. So you can just, just look at your lifestyle as well and kind of pull these different levers uh, to see like a net net positive result even without changing uh, your diet at all and still like build muscle or lose it those were one of the rookie mistakes that i made when i first got introduced to fasting because we have this reductionist approach to everything right when i first started fasting um i was introduced to this concept by a friend of mine and he was like oh you have to fast and i'm like are you stupid how can not eating make me healthier like the more i eat the healthier i get then i got into the research and i'm like oh perfect so you don't eat and then you or you fast rather and that also turns out a lot of these um, growth pathways later that can help you build muscle lose fat so what i did was i started with a 12-hour fast and then i'm like oh this is easy and then went to a 16-hour fast and then i thought getting more is better so i started doing one meal a day for almost eight months and um, i did not know about the muscle catabolic problems and i was doing crossfit for three hours a day and basically going on walks, doing CrossFit and all these things. And it just messed up my hormones. I wasn't cycling the calories properly because I was like, oh, let me just eat whatever I can. So those are some of the mistakes that I've made and I don't want anyone to make when you start things like this. So remember guys, more isn't better. And talking about more calories and things like this, one other surprising fact that everyone thinks about is restriction of calories and longevity. So can you explain to us like why reducing the amount of calories can actually increase your lifespan? Uh, well, part of it has to do with uh, the ones that we already talked about that it turns on these same pathways in the body like autophagy and uh, flexoproteins and uh, suppresses mTOR and uh, yeah, like helps to like reduce the burden on the mitochondria. And so like overeating just creates basically inflammation and oxidative stress to the mitochondria, which, you know, accelerates aging and calorie restriction, just eating less, you're like, yeah, like it's a, it's a, like a balanced thing again. Like, so you're eating less, you're, you're producing less energy 
and as a result of that, your mitochondria will be also spared <laughs> longer. So if you're like constantly running your engine, basically you can think of it like, and that if you're like, yeah, like the more the more often you use your car, uh, the kind of faster it's going to get old. And uh, but at the same time, if you don't use your car at all, it's also going to rust and uh, basically get broken down. So you need to run your car. Uh, every once in a while and kind of drive around it but you don't want to be basically like a race car all the time because uh that's just uh, leads to its uh, own death faster um you mentioned before and now as well about foxoproteins out there you also mentioned about um sirtuins which is this another group of proteins and genes um we know that cert one has so many good benefits in the body so can you tell us more about like sirtuins and their relationship with like other enzymes or coenzyme factors like NAD and things like that? Uh, yeah, well, sirtuins are like, they translate into like silent information regulators and they are a family of proteins. In humans, there are like seven of them um, and they, the DSLAs, um, NAD+, which is a, NAD is a, like a coenzyme in the body that is involved in energy production, but it's also involved with like all other enzymatic reactions so basically, sirtuins kind of detect the levels of NAD in the body and uh, also regulate other processes. Like they're involved with the circadian rhythms. Um, they're involved with like just metabolism and uh, yeah, general health. And uh, yeah, sirtuins have been kind of linked to longevity. And some of the things that can increase sirtuins would be, again, um, like exercise, colds, the hormetic stresses and fasting calorie restriction as well as this reservatrol in red wine, which is like very small amount. So you, you can't, you can't physically drink that much wine to get like a significant dose of reservatrol from wine. Uh, so yeah, like there are these reservatrol supplements, which uh, have been like in some studies have been shown to benefit like the metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Uh, but uh, in other studies, they don't work. Um, so I think uh, like reservatrol itself, maybe it may have like some benefits, but it may not either. So it depends on probably your like your disease state. So if you're already healthy, then it probably has less of an effect. But if you have like some sickness, then it can benefit. Uh, but uh, like regular sirtuin sirtuin activation with like this consuming like this dark darker uh, let's say polyphenols from vegetables and uh, berries is probably a good thing as well as um, these other hormetic uh, activities. I um, I got interested in Reservatol after reading all about the French paradox, but then I decided to take it a step further. And um, I found out another compound, which is basically the cousin of Reservatol. Um, I can't remember the name now. Basically, it's 10 to 50 times more powerful than Reservatol itself. But there will still, um, there still be nothing. Um, sorry? But there will still be Yes, I don't know how to pronounce that right, but I yeah, it, it's that. So I regularly consume um, peristaltin, and one of the other things that I find it very important, which people miss um, normally, is these these proteins that kind of reduce the NAD and NAD plus levels on our body, like proteins such as poly ADP ribose polymerase which it's also said like PARP1 and PARP2 proteins, which kind of happen when, again, you have all this DNA damage, whether it is from Wi-Fi or like traveling in airplanes. And what they do is basically reduce the amount of NAD. So there is less NAD available for the sirtuins. And now sirtuins have to sort of um, 
work on less energy and they can't really allocate all of their potential to extending human lifespan. So that is one other area of research that I'm really interested in, how EMFs destroy these other signaling pathways in the body. Wow, we've been going on for a very long time. And I'm sure like people, you have left people scratching their heads with hormesis, mitochondria, protein synthesis, muscle, all of these things that really affect aging. Now, Sim, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's lovely to talk to you. It's lovely to share this knowledge, um, ways of thinking. And um, thanks for all the work you do. And in case everyone who's listening, Sim has written amazing books. I have, um, I can show you one. Here's Metabolic Autophagy that uh, Sim has written. And, you know, it's, it's a heavy book, but let's see. Let me... So the references page for this starts at 483. And this is a huge book, guys. 483, and let's see where it ends. Uh, 533. 483, 533, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 10, So there are like 15 references per page. How many references did you get for this book? Because I know the number is huge. I can't remember it. I think it's like, uh, I have to look uh, something, uh, a few hundred, I think. Wow. Um, or it's actually, it's actually, it's 500, yeah, 545. But like, uh, my next book, uh, Stronger by Stress, which talks about hormesis, actually had, I think, over. Uh, it's actually had 2,000 references. <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. I haven't read that book yet. But, guys, whoever is listening, like, um, you guys probably think um, with the numbers that Sim has just shown or shared with us that putting a reference is very easy. Let me tell you, it's not. I've been um, digging into the scientific literature analyzing which one is right, reading the entire study or like looking at the concepts and then referencing that takes a hell of a time. And this is why I wanted to get Sim on the show because everything that he says, as I mentioned in the beginning, is being backed up upon. And if you, I respect people who've written a book. Um, I'm also in the process of writing a book uh, maybe in a few years from now because it really takes about 2,000 to 3,000 hours. I mean, more for Sim because he's he just put so many references. Um, but on an average, you will see people like spending 3,000 hours in writing a book. And if you could do one thing to biohack this entire process is pick up that book and read it. Because basically, that's what a person like Sam or anyone else has like organized all that information and made it available to you. And you can kind of like finish books in like seven, eight, nine hours, depending on yourself. So imagine 2,000 hours and you can reduce it down to like eight hours, nine hours. That's the biggest biohack for today. And Sim, if people want to find you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, well, my website is simlund.com and uh, I'm simlund on all the social media platforms. Okay, so simlund.com and simland. And before you go, Sim, I want you to tell us one piece of advice, a tip, something that you would like to share with the audience something that you have probably learned after writing 2000 references or some just basic philosophy of life? Uh, well, that's a good, good hard, hard question. Um, maybe uh, 
maybe that uh yeah like uh don't fomo into things maybe <laughs> so don't uh okay. don't go like in, don't go like, fo- like fear or fear of missing out so don't go into like this uh don't do things just because you think you're missing out on something uh or something uh, but you should uh you should kind of figure out like the, your own path and then follow it as opposed to yeah trying to uh chase uh, the kind of uh, ideas of others in the age of instagram and tiktok and live feeds and uh, facebook check-ins guys this is probably one of the most important things don't feel that you're missing out it's okay all those things are meant to play with your mind so sam thank you for being on the show and for everyone who's listening i hope you had a great time i certainly had an amazing time got to learn a lot from sam and take care i'm signing out from this episode of the Ship with CJ podcast. I hope everyone has a great day ahead of them. Bye, Sim. Bye. Your time and presence with us through this podcast is highly appreciated. If you want to learn more, then head over to our website, www.shiftwithcj.com.